by the example you are to people around you. So uh, I just need you to, to know that. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at a prayer inside of Ephesians chapter 3. This, was, this is a, a very well-known prayer inside of Scripture. Uh, and so just to catch you up on the series that we've been in for the past four weeks, and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll end it next week with the last prayer that we're looking at, is we're looking at the prayer of the saints. The, the heart behind this series is for us as followers of Jesus to be able to look into Scripture to how people prayed in Scripture and for us to learn how we can pray for other people people. Now, let's just be honest. If we could say probably one of the weakest spiritual disciplines that many of us have, it's probably prayer. Uh, it's funny. I was um, talking with a neighbor of mine, uh, a guy who's always trolling our neighborhood. I love him to death. Uh, his name is Steve. And he came by my house last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, and, um, and we were talking, and I told him that I was sermon prepping, finishing some, some stuff up. Oh, what, what are you preaching on? So I told him, and he said, oh, Jordan, you know what we're good at and what we're not good at? I said, tell me, Steve. Uh, and he said, man, we are so good at asking God for lots of things, but what we're not good at is listening. Oh, I was like, Steve, you want to come preach this sermon for me? <laughs> I mean, it's such a good reminder. I mean, this whole idea of prayer as far as how we respond to God whenever he interacts with us, how thankful we are, um, how we hear him, how we interact with people around us, and how we pray for them. We're not just praying for ourselves, we're praying for other people. But yet the Spirit of God is interacting with us in the midst of all of that. And it is really a supernatural thing when God comes in and leads us to pray, not just for ourselves or our families, but for other people around us in the world. And so we're just looking into scriptures to say, God, give us something that is bigger than what my knowledge is of prayer as we see how these people have prayed uh, and, and, and teach me something. So that's what this series has really been all about. Um, diving into today in Ephesians chapter 3, the impact that life has on us can leave lots of scars. Let's just be honest with that, right? Some of us in this room would probably say that we just have mere flesh wounds, if you will. But yet, they're scars. Like, we live out life, and life gets difficult, and, and we've escaped big things, but yet, I mean, it's had an impact on us, and, and I've gone through difficult times. But, but compared to other people, I would just say that I have mere flesh wounds. But um, for others in this room, we feel like we've been put through a meat grinder. So much just keeps piling and piling and piling on. The reality is that God has never left us nor forsaken us during any of these storms in our lives. Through life's twists and turns and through life's bumps and bruises, the fact is that God is in the middle of it all, leading us as his children back to himself. The prayer that we're going to be reading here in a second in Ephesians chapter 3 um, is for someone who needs to be awakened to God's strength and God's power. Followers of Jesus who are going through seasons that we're looking from a distance and saying, oh my gosh, God, have mercy on him because I don't know if he could take anymore. I don't know if she can handle much more. So God, have mercy. Remind this individual and this person of your strength and your power because God, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are involved in what's going on. You have not left them. You are not leaving them on their own. Maybe they're not seeing you and by the choices they're making, you're, you're even concerned if they're 
ever get back to a place of loving and trusting Jesus, but yet what do we pray? These are the types of things that we're going to pray for today. The context of this prayer is Paul actually praying for Gentiles as they are becoming grafted into the fellowship of the church. So before we read in Ephesians 3, 14, let's just back up and see the context of what's going on in Ephesians 3, verse 1 through 7, or sorry, 1 through 6. Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to, uh, that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men or other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the saints. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Okay, do you get what's going on here, who Paul is speaking to, and, and what he is doing inside of, of all of this? Non-Jews have been outside of God's family for all of time, but now they are being brought into the fold of God's family. I can assume that many have watched closely from a distance and they have a good grasp of who this God is as they are hearing about it and as they are uh, being illuminated to it and as they are surrendering to it, the, they, they see the, the Jewish practices and, the, and they know who this God is. And so it is a transition and a jump, but maybe not as big for, for some. While there's others, this is a whole new thing for them. As they are being overwhelmed by God's grace and by God's mercy, they are still wrestling with how this plays out in their everyday life. Does that sound familiar? Because that's my story. As I just continue to wrestle with how to, um, how to live out God's purpose and God's design for me because life just doesn't end up being linear or simple. It's actually much more complicated and we have a lot more scars than we ever wanted to as we walk through this life. So let's look at this prayer. Let's see it in its full context and then we'll spend some time unpacking it together. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14 and, and read through 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on, and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and all we think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. I was prepping for this week, um, had a, a conversation with someone in our church uh, just about community life group stuff, but as well family stuff. It's good to see uh, Chad and Sharon Peterson here this morning with your new baby, Micah. He looks strong as I saw you coming in. I get a close look, but maybe later. Um, 
Maybe you'll let me hold them. Anyway, okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, so Chad and I had a chance to get together for lunch, and the first time that we've really had a, a real long conversation that was just more about real life and not about church life stuff, and just sharing to me the joys of being a brand new parent for the first time. Um, and and dude's got a good head on his shoulders. They, they know what they're doing. They've watched some, some good people. But it was reminding me of my journey going into parenthood. Becoming a parent for the very first time, it changes things. Your life seems like it might just turn right on up. Side down. I think this story is fitting even for my own life today as I'm celebrating my oldest kid turning 16. Uh, man, sometimes it just seems like we're only babies ourselves whenever we have kids. Um, this has to stay between us. We're family, right? Okay. So, um, <laughs> I know. I am not 12 years old in this picture. <laughs> I promise. I mean, as I was thinking about just how life changes and also just about the ebbs and flows, some people are, are older when they start families if, if, uh, if they ever do start families, which is okay and great. There's not one way to do life, but there's others of us that, that it starts much younger. I'm 23 years old in this picture, about to be 24. And, but I look at this picture, I'm just like, oh my gosh. First of all, I gotta stop eating McDonald's. Um, second of all, <laughs> second of all, like... How in the world would God ever trust me with that living thing? Like, I'm away from my parents, my wife and I, very first time ever. And uh, anyway, okay, you see the picture. We're going on and on, right? So we don't need to keep looking at that. Um, Whenever we became parents for the first time, I remember getting our hands on every book that that was recommended and asking our friends to read those books and tell us what they say so that we can do the things that are inside that book. Just being completely honest, right? Um, So there's a a few, back in in the the early 2000s, there were some controversial books that uh, the people in the church were reading were like, don't ever do that. And there's others that people were saying, absolutely do that. We read the ones that people say, don't ever do that because that intrigued me. Um, and so it worked for us, right? And so we're just learning out how to, how to do this. People enter into parenting in so many different unique ways. There are some people who, um, for, for lack of a better term, are probably enter into parenting more fear-driven than anything else. And so you get a kid in your household, you're looking at it, it looks fragile, you don't want to break it, and so, um, and so you, you just kind of become recluse, right? And so you have this life outside of kids, and then all of a sudden you get this kid, and then, then you never leave the house again. And maybe you put five or six or seven locks, especially on the windows if it's girl um, on the inside and outside just so that everything is safe right so that you know you just you're just fear driven like I I don't want to I don't want to mess this up I, let's just let's keep it safe let's keep it here let's pull away from everything that we know so that we can just be us because I don't want to break it there's other people that and I've been in youth ministry for 20 years and so I've, I've seen a ton of parenting Thankfully, this isn't the norm, but I have seen parents who um, are more annoyed that they have a kid than anything else. And I'm not talking about the, the general annoyance that we all get as parents. Every single one of us, if you've had kids, you know what it likes to be angry, frustrated, and annoyed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the parents who are looking at the kids and dumping them off on anyone that they can so that they can just keep doing their, their own life, right? 
These are two ends, two polar extremes. But I remember a conversation that my wife and I had whenever we first had Austin, and we're like, okay, we, we had a social life. We had friends that we hung out with what, probably three, four, five, six times a week, that, and, and we're like, we don't want to slow that down. We know life is going to change. We're not going to get to do the things, all the things that we've done, because life does change, but we don't want this kid to change our identity and who we are as a couple, and ultimately who we are as a family. So... The books and the encouragements were bring your pack and play. Pack up your entire house, your bat diaper bag, your pack and play, the bouncy chair, the nanny. No, I'm just kidding. Leave the nanny home. Uh, bring it with you. Find a blanket that the kid loves, right? And it just feels comfortable so that they'll go to sleep at someone else's house. And we did. And it worked for one of them. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> No, I mean, just the reality that, that life, life can totally change. You, you can own this idea of being a parent. Or you can totally ignore this idea of being a parent. Um, being a parent is a lifestyle of choices. And we, and we are never not engaged in their lives. Now that I have a 16-year-old, that is more true today than, than even I believed five, six, seven years ago. I believed in a pipe dream that one day I could just let go. At 16, 17, I'll just trust them, right? They, they make good choices and ultimately do, but they still need guidance. Now I have friends who have kids who are all in college, and now they're empty nesters, and I'm like, oh, great, you have freedom. They're like, no, life just changes a little bit, right? So just a reminder that we are never not engaged. Whenever they start getting, having their own families, whenever grandkids are on the scene, whenever, you know, it, it just, it never stops. Being a parent is something that we own whenever we become a parent, and we say, I want to do this well. I'm going to wrestle through the thick and the thin, and I really want to do this thing well. The best parents that I've seen are the ones who own their roles as mom and dads. This does not mean they're perfect, this means actually that they admit that they're not perfect. I mean, you go through seasons of liking your kids and not liking your kids. Some of these seasons are shorter. Some of them are longer. It's normal. If you felt that before and you're a little shamed, it's okay. Talk about it. It's normal. Everyone in this room that's had a kid can, can admit that very same thing. But the best parents are the ones who own their roles and are committed for the long haul. When things aren't going well and things aren't going right, when I feel like I'm in a dark time, I'm committed to figure this thing out so that I can pursue forward, so that I can get on the other side of this dark cloud. It's the commitment. Maybe it takes you a while to get there. Maybe you're able to work through that pretty quickly. That doesn't matter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the commitment of saying, I need and want to get on that, uh, that other side to have a, a, a good relationship with my kid where they understand that I'm the parent, but secondly, I have a good relationship with my kid where they can seek advice from me. I mean, this is not easy, simple stuff. This is a lifetime of choices and apologies and conversations and on and on and on. The big idea of this prayer relates, I see, in a subtle way. The big idea to this prayer is to own your relationship with Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. As I've interacted with Jesus' followers, there are some who claim the name of Jesus. They call themselves Christians, but you look at the way that our lives are lived out, and it's more lived out like someone calling themselves a parent whenever they're looking to ditch the kid every opportunity that they get. 
Or there's the followers of Jesus who are like, this is complicated. Again, it's not linear. It's muddy. It's murky. But I'm committed to the process, and I want to love Jesus the best way that I can. And I may not do it the same way as the person sitting next to me, but I'm committed to the process of doing it in a way that honors God in the best way that I know how. That's what I'm talking about. Owning your relationship. Paul, in this prayer, is leading us to see who God is as he interacts with us with his strength and his power to say, stay committed, own this, hold on to this, make sure that it's your own as you continue to move forward because as you do, that's what's going to get you through. As we're talking about praying for other people, we know people. We are in relationship with people who walk through these dark seasons and we get to pray this for them as we stand in the gap for them when they're hurting. When we think they may not be able to see the way out, they're in the middle of this dark cloud, we get to pray these prayers for them. God, may they see you in strength and in power. May they know who you are as your love is lavished on them and may they work their way through this cloud and continue to own. God, do not give up. Do not forsake. Do not let go. May your mercy reign over them. These are the prayers that I want us to see and pray as we dive into Ephesians chapter 3 and looking at the context of what it is saying to us. (laughs) The sneaky little trick here, this isn't just for our friends. Many of us are in these dark clouds, in these dark places, and we need the reminder to walk through because of who God is and who Christ is for us and how his Holy Spirit interacts with us. We get to intentionally see the triune God in the midst of this text. We get to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead working together, interacting with us in their unique roles and how it lives out. And so pay attention to that as we walk through this text. So the first thing that, that I want us to see inside this is, is this, God's passion. The first, two, the first two verses are really an introductory. This isn't even getting into the prayer yet, but Paul is doing something that is displaying God's passion, and I don't want us to move too quick beyond it. So let's just look at um, Ephesians chapter four, or sorry, Ephesians chapter three, verse 14 and 15 again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on earth, uh, sorry, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This idea of bowing his knees before the Father, that's not the natural posture that people entered the throne of God. Yes, we see all throughout Scripture that people are thrown um, uh, on their faces before God. People are cast to their knees. I mean, we look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So yes, being on your knees before God is not something that's foreign to Scripture, but that's not the natural posture that people entered into the synagogue and entered into the church. It was standing. That was the natural posture. They wanted to stand as they prayed. They wanted to stand as they read. They wanted to stand in honor and respect of who God is. So Paul is now coming to them and saying, I'm coming in a whole different posture for you and on your behalf. I'm coming to you and I'm bowing my knees to the Father because I have great reverence and submissiveness and respect and oneness with who God is as I'm praying for unity for you and for me as we interact with God. A couple words we could just blow past, but it has great meaning. For me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. (laughs) 
Let's be honest with one another. We read scripture. We hear of the great saints historically in the past, right? We see the, the Abrahams and the Moseses. We see the Isaiahs and the Peter, James, and Johns and the Pauls. Then we got the Mother Teresas and we got the uh, Martin Luthers and the John Calvins. And we got the, or, 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 fill it in, Billy Graham, whatever name comes to your mind. We got these people and for some of us in this room, we think that God interacts with them differently than he interacts with us. That is absolutely not true. There are dynamics to talk about there that kind of maybe led to a really personal and unique relationship that maybe those people had with God. But the same thing that was offered to them is offered to you. And before you start going down this mental path, Jordan, you said Peter, James, and John, and they actually walked with Jesus. I can't do that. Boom, roasted. <laughs> do you remember the text where Jesus said, it is better for you that I leave so that you can have the Holy Spirit so that I can be interacting in the same exact way with every single person on the face of this earth? I mean, for those who want to surrender themselves to me, I have that type of relationship with them. I mean, we got to have right understanding. People don't have special privileges and powers and to tap into who God is. Scripture points to God is the one that is interacting with us and we have the opportunity to have that same exact relationship with him based on the choices we make in this life and how we surrender and we own and we stop blame shifting and we just want to own our relationship with Christ. So we see Paul saying to God, about God, that every family in heaven on earth is named after you. You're the Lord of it all. So God, I beg you and beseech you. And he continues. As we talk about God's passion, it's good for us to know that God's ultimate passion is to bring glory to himself. Lace all throughout scripture from the beginning to the end. God wants to make himself known, himself seen and adored, and absolutely that is not conceited or self-centered. It is what draws us to worship because he is the only one and being that deserves every bit of it, and scripture is drawing us to be able to see him in that light. <laughs> Charlie Hall wrote a song back in the late 90s that um, just called One Thing, and it's based off of this psalm of Psalms 27. And the psalmist in Psalms 27, pointing to this idea that we live for the glory of God. The psalmist starts off in Psalm 27 in verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? He's prefacing it because in the next two verses, he's going to talk about the things that he fears. He's going to talk about the things that he's afraid of. He says, the evildoers evil assail me and eat up my flesh. And in verse 3, he continues on, though an enemy encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. So these people are pursuing him to eat his flesh, is the words that he says. Camps uh, are around him who are desiring to pursue and destroy who he is. And his response, his response to God is this. One thing I have asked of the Lord, not to deliver me, not to save my flesh, not to make the people who have surrounded me go away, but one thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. How we live life and what we do absolutely matters, and it is important, but it is very small in comparison to how we pursue God and how we want to know who he is in our lives as we strive to say, the one thing I want, God, more than anything else, is to own my relationship with you. And as I own my relationship with you, God, lead me to seek after you. Lead me to dwell in your house forever, all the days of my life. Lead me to gaze upon your beauty and take away all the things that are ugly in my life as I look upon your beauty. We'll go there in a minute, a little bit deeper as far as what that means in my experience in life. But man, that's what we're begging, we're asking of God. So God's passion is for his glory. God's passion is to say that there's no special favor that any human being has. God wants to interact with you in the same way he interacts with me, the same way he interacts with anyone else who claims to be his disciple. Know that about yourself. There's no exemption no exception in this room. Okay. As he dives into the, the prayer, we see a little bit um, more. We, we get into God's strength. So we see God's passion. Let's look at God's strength. Um, let's start back at the top and read through verse 16. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's a mouthful, but get it and see it, and let's talk about it, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. God, the creator of it all, who put it all into motion, who is interacting with us, now says to you, I want to strengthen you and I want to uphold you. And the way that I want to do that is I want to do it with the power that I have. The power that A, put it all together by the power that A, resurrected Christ from the cross. The power I want to display in your life is exemplified in those examples. But I want to do it through his spirit, or through, yeah, through his spirit in your inner being. God cares most about your heart. God cares most about your inner being, and he is pursuing that. And the way that he says he is pursuing you is through his spirit. That third person of the Trinity, man, that's something we don't like talking about because we don't know it. We don't know him. We don't know how to interact with him. We don't know how to pray to him. Am I supposed to pray to him or am I supposed to pray to God? This is a really interesting thing because we're Baptists. These are the questions we ask. There are other people in this world who have no problem talking about this. But the reality is, is that God interacts with us, the Baptist camp, the same that he interacts with the Pentecostal camp, the same he interacts with, you know, you get the drift, right? God's the same in how he interacts with everyone and what we need to grow in is maybe how we interact with and we understand and we know the role of the Spirit in our lives because God says, I'm bringing strength to you in my power through my Spirit to your inner being. Summarize, I'm speaking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm here. I haven't left. Here I am. Listen, (laughs) in the 
famous words of my neighbor, Steve. <laughs> Listen. Let's just look, spend a minute looking at the work of the Spirit. And I got some verses on the screen behind me that I want us to kind of blow through and see some general principles about the Spirit because God, Paul's making a big deal of, of how God interacts with us through his Spirit. So John chapter 16 we're going to start in verse 4, the second part of verse 4, entering into that paragraph if, you, if you're following along with me. If not, you can just listen, and, and this is what it says. Jesus is speaking. He's teaching. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, for his death and for his resurrection. He is going to be no more. He's saying, I've been talking about this. You're not asking any questions, but here we go. We're going to enter into this conversation. That's essentially what he is saying. Again, verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're sad Jesus is about to leave. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, all of those apply to what is going on here. The helper will not come to you if I don't go away. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is coming and he is a him, he is not an it, and he is a part of the triune Godhead who has been from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, but now he is entering the scene with power as Jesus dies and is resurrected. And what is great we see here, the role of the Holy Spirit is to speak, and when he speaks, he convicts the world concerning sin, he speaks righteousness, and he speaks judgment. In other words, the only thing the Holy Spirit is really capable of doing is to be able to declare the beauty of Jesus constantly. As he points out our sin, look at the beauty of Jesus. As he talks about righteousness and shows us who we are in comparison to who Almighty God is, he is saying Jesus. Whenever he talks about judgment, he is saying Jesus. The Holy Spirit is just proclaiming the name of Jesus constantly in a different ways to our hearts. And he is a him who is interacting with you. And so do you interact with him? Do you listen? Um, Continue on this, this thought of the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8. This is, uh, I learned this from a book I read many years ago um, by Jonathan, uh, John Owen. Um, it focused on this verse, and man, it, it, it's a staple in my life as I continue to fight my own sin nature and the Spirit's role in that. So Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. Speaking of the role of the Holy Spirit convicting sin, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he is the one. If you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. 
the sin that you struggle with that you are ashamed to ever talk about and or admit, the things that weigh you down, that make you feel so insecure in your relationship with God, the things that you do that have actually robbed you from having any type of relationship with God, these are the things that the Holy Spirit is saying, if you walk with me, you get to start putting those things to death and walk alive in me. You can't do that by the flesh, but by my spirit, as I interact with you, you will do this. Lastly, Galatians chapter 5, one of um, a very well-known passage of Scripture, this, um, the fruit of the Spirit. We're not getting to that. We're, we're going to read what's before that, but that's what's coming right after is Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, as you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There is a war going on for your heart, and the spirit wants to guide you and lead you and direct you. Going back to Ephesians chapter 3, there is um, God in all of his strength and power wants to um, speak this into you by his spirit in your inner being, reminding you who you are. You're not alone. God wants more for you than you ever want for yourself. God loves you more than you could ever love yourself. That goes the same with your friends, your family members, your church. God loves them so much more than you ever could in this strength, this is where our relationship with Jesus comes alive. Not that we just talked to God, but that the Holy Spirit interacts with us and leads us. This is the strength to have confidence in who we are when we know God is involved right now. It is humbling to us as his followers. Thirdly, as we just move on, is this truth that Christ is in you. So let's look at verse 16 again. And Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, back to the prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may be rooted and grounded in love. that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Paul is highlighting the relationship that the Godhead has with every single one of us as he interacts with us. His spirit is guiding us and Jesus is indwelling in our hearts, living inside every single one of us. The result of God's strength that we just read about is Christ taking residence in the hearts of all followers of his. <laughs> Did you grow up in, in a, a church tradition, and, and I think this is pretty normal in most church traditions, that, uh, that whenever um, you want to pray to receive Jesus, you ask Jesus to come into your heart, right? Is, is, that, is that a normal thing that you guys are, are familiar with? Okay, um, think about someone who doesn't know God at all, and think about how weird that is, <laughs> 
that there's this little guy that I'm asking to come live inside my heart, right? And so uh, I, I was just, just laughing this, this week about the, really the, the complexity of this idea of, of asking Jesus to come live inside my heart. Maybe this is just my childish way of thinking about things, but I, I've always thought that, that, like that I'm just picturing a house with Jesus living in it and, and inside my heart. Is that what we're really asking? Is that what we're really believing? Uh, n- no, absolutely not. That, that's kind of ridiculous for us to think about that, that Jesus... Okay, I'm not, I just keep repeating myself. Um, you're not giving me the laughs that I want, and so I just keep saying it over and over again until you laugh, so thank you. You stopped me. Um, no, but, but Scripture actually, and the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, as well in Colossians chapter 1, talks about this being the mystery. The, uh, Colossians 1, 27, if you want to go back and look at it, it talks about this being the mystery. The mystery of Scripture is Christ living in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there is this great biblical truth and principle that, that Christ is living in your hearts, but we know that he's not in, he is indwelling, but it's not like physically living inside your heart. Try to explain that to an eight-year-old, I don't know. But um, I read this this week, and, and uh, it made a lot of sense that, and related well to me, that this particular mystery has to do with Jesus actually residing inside you after you get saved. It is this mystery uh, sorry, it is a mystery how the creator of the universe, who is currently seating at the right hand of God the Father, could literally and fully indwell every single follower of his. But he does. So this thing I mock as a kid that you're trying to wrap your head and understand is actually biblical reality. How all that interacts and how all that works, I, I don't know. I can't explain. I've experienced it in a really unique way that God is. That, that, that Jesus is inside of me, but how that plays out, I don't know. As I'm learning to interact and know what this means that Jesus is living inside me, I, I think back to a story of, of mine that um, whenever, um, I'll never forget, I went to a conference um, a number of years ago. This was a season of my life that I was really struggling with sexual sin. And uh, I did it really privately, uh, struggled privately. I didn't tell a lot of people of what was going on. Um, and, and, and as I was listening to this speaker, as I was a, 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 a young pastor, a young minister leader at a church, I sat in this audience and the pastor said something that made so much sense to me, that brought light to a reality that, um, that has, has changed my life forever, honestly. You guys ever sat in a church service where you just feel like someone is speaking directly to you? Like, we're having a one-on-one conversation right now. <laughs> okay, talk about the Holy Spirit interacting. I mean, that's just what the Holy Spirit does, right? And what this pastor was explaining was that whenever, uh, think about your heart being a shape, if you will, and you could divide that shape right down the middle and say that there's Jesus living on one side and your sin nature living on, on the other. I just picture my sexual uh, temptation, my sexual desires in that other side. And he said that so many times we look at the bad side of our heart and we just want to attack and attack and attack. And we get so fixated at attacking, we give it so much tension and a focus that after a year, a year, a two, three, a decade, so many decades of our lives looking at that and trying to fight that, it just never goes away. He said, my encouragement for those of you who are sitting here struggling in that way is to not look at that bad side of your heart, but to look at the Jesus side of your heart. Fall in love with Jesus, and as that side grows, it will push out the thing that you long for, that sinful nature you long for the most. 
And that was revolutionary in my life, to be able to say, I'm going to take my eyes off of the thing that I'm stumbling on and just look to the thing that is the most beautiful, and I want to fall more in love with that most beautiful thing, though I'm still struggling here, but I'm not going to give it the attention that it does not deserve, and I'm going to be looking at Jesus and give him the attention he does deserve, and my love for him just grew more and more and more, and then the battle grew less and less and less with this one temptation that overwhelmed me. (laughs) Jesus living in our hearts. Is it a shape? Is it split in half? Is it really that easy? No, it's, it's, really, it's so complicated. But the reality of what's being said is absolutely true. God's strength in us centers on Christ dwelling in our hearts as the Holy Spirit continues to lead. I apologize for those of you who like taking notes. I'm changing that, okay. Getting to the fourth point. The deepest, the, let's look and end with probably the, one of the most beautiful things inside this passage is the reminder of the deep love of Christ. Starting in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When it says here, and this is where I really get my main point from that I want us to focus on as a church, is this idea of comprehending with all of the saints. The NIV says to grasp. If we think about this this visual picture that they're wanting us to do, it's not just to have a mental understanding of what's going on here in these four directional things that he's talking about. What he's leading us to say is as we grasp something, we hold it as our own. I'm comprehending, I'm owning this. I'm not just saying I understand it or maybe I believe it down to my core, but I'm committing to the reality that, uh, that this is the absolute truth of who God is. So all the things that we said before is absolutely truth, driven by this main point of God's deep love through Christ to us. To hold as our own, just like the saints before you did. That the love of Christ is too large to be confined by any, any geometrical shape. Get this picture and this reality. That God's love for you, fill in your name there. I don't want you to generalize that for us as a church, though it's true. I need you to personalize this and say, God's love for you is wide enough to reach your entire world, but not just to reach your entire world. God's love is wide enough to reach the entire world. From hemisphere to hemisphere, up and down, to reach the most unreached people groups of the world, God's love is wide enough to reach them all. And if that that is true, how much more is that true for you? God's love is long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity, from the beginning of Genesis chapter one, right before he created Adam and Eve, when he planned it all out, to the very end of what's being depicted in Revelation chapter 21, at the very end of time. His love is so long that it spans all across times, all across cultures, all across understanding. 
across centuries, the things that we focus on and the things that tend to highlight us as a century, God's love is so simple and universal, it is long enough to reach all of that. God's love to us through Christ, what he did on the cross, is high enough to raise both Jew and Gentile. He started with his chosen race to make himself known very intentionally in the Old Testament, but he intentionally did not stop there. He did that with the point of moving on, and we see the Gospels and Acts and how the church was spread and how we can be here in 2019 a product of what God did back in the day of Pentecost because his love is high enough high enough to reach every single one of us. None of us are out of his grasp. He could grasp every single one of us. And lastly, God's love for you through Christ and what he accomplished on the cross is deep enough to rescue us from our totally depraved sin nature. And my friends, brothers and sisters, I'm gonna argue that this is the one we downplay the most. Because our natural response, whether you think it or it's just something that naturally comes out, is, is you think, but yeah, you don't know my sin nature. That's the way you behave is, yeah, but God, you don't understand my sin nature, so God has to work a little harder to reach me. And I'm going to say that is not biblical. That is not the God that is pointed to in this passage of Scripture. It is deep enough to rescue you from your sins and bring you out of the depths. He could wash out the bad stuff in your heart, however you would label that, and fill it with his love as he leads you. <laughs> this is the core of God's strength. The core of God's strength is the way that he loves you through Christ, and he makes it known by his Holy Spirit as he interacts personally and individually with every single one of you. Now, as we close, we think about this, taking this back to the prayer side as we think about our fellow brothers and sisters who struggle, who life has put them through a meat grinder, and right now maybe they're not keeping their eyes on Jesus, we pray for them that they are able to see all of this that we've talked about. They're able to understand who God is because at one point you know that they did, but maybe they're not living that out right now, so we get to stand in the gap and believe that for them. And we get to push them to the reality in our prayer life to say, God, bring them back to the understanding of how wide you are and how long you are and how high you are and how deep you are that they cannot escape just how beautiful you are so that you can bring them back to you. God, do this in your great mercy. Would you please do this for your sake, for your name's sake. Bring them back to you. We get to pray these prayers for our fellow brothers and sisters. And I do think that it's specific for followers of Jesus, but I don't think it's divorced from the idea of praying the same prayer for people who don't know Jesus yet because we know that's God that illuminates hearts, not you, not me. Not that we say it's gonna be convincing enough until God just says, here I am, see me? <laughs> Absolutely, I see you. So, the last two verses in this is what I see as like the ultimate cheers. Everyone lift your glass, cheers. As we pray this, as we know this, we're declaring to God back to who he is. Paul starts off with declaring to God who he is or making comments about who God is and he brings it all back to God again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or what we think. He is outside of your mind. He is outside of your time. He is outside of 
all minds and outside of all times. He could do far more abundantly than all we ask or all we think. So ask. According to the power at work within us, to him, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to invite the worship team back on stage and I'm just going to close us in prayer as we just end our morning responding to who God is. I'd love to just give you a challenge that that you would pray this prayer for someone that maybe you know even in these next few moments as we sing. Maybe you know someone is is struggling and they're sitting next to you and you want to take them to the back to, to, to pray with them or up front or even right there in your seats. Take those opportunities. As God leads you to respond to him through what he's saying to you, I ask that you just feel free to do it. Let's pray. God, even thinking about um, my life, my journey, my week, I'm standing in this awe of who you are, thanking you, God, for interacting with us for making yourself known. And God, I just ask that you would just lead us faithfully to apply these words in a way that is most beneficial and helpful for us in our journey with you so that you can make your name great in our lives. Lead us to worship you and respond appropriately. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.